Hello and welcome to a very special bonus episode of Movie of the Year. The only podcast on the internet that has the science and the screaming to determine what is the single greatest movie of any given year. Up to two times a week now. This is, I mean, that's so much <laughs> movie of the year, that's, of the bi-weekly. It's a lot of just the movie part. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> and we were, we were getting nervous because our podcast for the regular 1975 season, which is going extremely well, Greg, yeah. what did you say? Oh, yeah, we're killing I mean, it. We're killing it. Um, those episodes were only like 90 minutes to two hours. Yeah. And is that enough of us in any given week? From what I'm getting from my wife, almost, probably, probably not enough, but almost. So why, so what we're going to do is we're going to, uh, we're going to do the regular season, which is the eight movies that made the bracket, but we're actually going to spill over into like a, a full summer long bonus shows, shorter shows, much shorter. Uh, the other movies of 1975 that didn't make the bracket. Why? Like, why Why does 1975 need this? That's such a great question, Ryan. I think what we realized is that we were not... I mean, we weren't alive in 75. It's hard for people to imagine that two elder statesmen like you and I, that you could even conceive of a year where we weren't alive. But Any year that starts in 19. Yeah, you you, we were there. <laughs> we were there. Uh, but... You know, we weren't alive, and so we didn't have, like, the feel for it. And so independently, without even consulting one another, which is not how we do anything, uh, the three of us just started watching 75 movies, and it became apparent that, like, our format is not sufficient to to cover 75 if we don't have enough of, like, the background on it. And so we just thought we need to do a bunch of shows about the movies of 75 because there are so many that are so worthy of at least talking about. Yeah, maybe not on the bracket. No. Not every movie can have the most incredible honor in Hollywood of getting onto the bracket, but at least their own show, that's yeah. a pretty big honor, I'd say. Uh, Greg, you are right. For the first time ever, and this is like our maybe 10th season, 10th year that we've done, once we uh, chose the year, all three of us ran out and just started watching yeah. the movies that weren't assigned to us, which is either both either the coolest or nerdiest thing I've ever heard. And we did a lot of them. That's the thing. Like we like you, me, and Mike all watched like four movies right before the premiere. We were texting back and forth to each other about what we were watching and, and the themes that we were seeing. And I find there is a lot of conversation between the movies of 75. And because of that, I think like you can't talk about 75 without talking about day of the locust, not because it was a huge 75 movie, but because it is talking about all the things that the movies of 75, you know, that other movies of 75 are also talking about. Yeah. We do a lot of work uh, during the season to get into that year. Um, you know, we'll do Rushmore's of like fashion yeah. or um, the music or the TV. And that does help, but it's really hard to get into the movie world of any given year without, other than like watching the movies. That really helps a lot. Eight isn't that many when it comes down to the course of an entire year. Um, so just tonight we are doing Day of the Locust, as you can see by the title of this episode. And yeah, what a fucking banger to yeah. to start off with. Not just about the themes that 1975 cares about, but also the style of filmmaking, um, which we're going to get into a lot. This movie is fucking nuts. Yeah, it seems like it, it wants to harken back to old school Hollywood in um, the visuals and not just like how the characters look or where it's set, but like 
literally the the like smeared vaseline soft focus lens the adr the like the the foley and the adr the sound in this is crazy no matter where the people are it sounds like everyone's standing in a little booth talking into a microphone because clearly that's how they did most of the dialogue and i can't believe on some of these this goes for a lot of 75 movies even like all-time classics the remastered kind of thing it almost always just works with picture I can't believe how much better they can make this shitty ass picture and the sound just sort of stays the same as like and that's the sound effect for everything is seven the 70s and and i mean i'll speak for just 75 because that's what i've been studying like i'm in grad school or something but the the 70s had their own like special effects that everybody accepted as normal and we have moved off that style for instance i just finished watching jaws blood had a certain hue in the movies of the 70s and it was like very fun it was like a fun thing yeah let's like see people get ripped open and all this cool blood will shoot out of them and now i think there's like a more grim realism to the blood in our movies and so it's like less fun (laughs) to see i've i've never heard about some sort of like uh i don't know a Warren commission or something where they came down really hard on blood in the mid 70s but yeah this mutual decision by i watched dolmite just before the season Uh started And it's just bright, shiny, happy red paint that flies out of everybody. Yeah, there's really no other way to, 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 like, there's nothing else you can say about the shade other than it is cheery. It is like a fun (laughs) shade of red. It makes me want to party. I do think that says something about the 70s. I mean, think of how many movies that we're going to be talking about for 75 that are some sort of blood sport. You know, Uh, the the fun and the carnivalesque atmosphere of violence and gore was never more alive than it was in 75. And we are definitely going to get to the blood sport of this movie. But mm-hmm. before we do, I, I just want to ask in general. This is a movie that uh, we both read the book it was based on, the book that came out 35 years. This was not necessarily a hot commodity at the time. Um, overall, before we dive into it, what do you think of The Day of the Locust? It's uh, a hard watch because it is distasteful in, in almost every way a movie can be. Um, but it is edifying in its own way it is it's like perverse and twisted and i think it's an early look at early hollywood being that way and i see how the roots of many movies we like like are planted deeply within this movie but it's not fun to watch and it's not like enjoyable there's a lot of times where the movie goes out of its way to be very aggravating and annoying (laughs) And it yeah. succeeds at that. Like, and so and it uses know, every annoying tool in the toolbox. Yes. Like, whether it's sound or bright lights or, or whatever it can do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the most annoying of all. <laughs> I, I, before we dive into it, I just like, I think this movie was definitely worth watching. Yes. And there are moments of sheer brilliance and terror, and sometimes at the same time. Um, ultimately, I think that it has this thing that a lot of adaptations of novels do where um, there's not flow. There's no, no uh, yeah. like structural flow from scene to scene or even segment to segment or even act to act because books can get away with a lot of different things. But also, when you're, when you're uh, adapting a screenplay or a novel into a screenplay, you're just tearing shit out. Yeah. And sometimes you just don't, you, you forget that, oh, you, that was an important transitional piece from scene A to scene B. You it know? would take you, it, this is one of those b- movies that's almost like a companion to the book. Like, you know, right. oh, you've read the book, so so you know why there's no connective tissue between the last scene and this one. 
But the book itself, if you just sat down and read it, it would take you like seven hours to read. This movie clocks in at around two hours. So like, that's a lot left on the cutting room floor, you know? Not that that's exactly how it translates, but when you're like taking out whole chunks of dialogue from the book, it really, that's, a, you know, you end up losing so much of it. And I did do the the classic Greg thing of flipping through the book. Hell yeah. Uh, like I didn't sit down and read it, but I've read chunks of it, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I cannot believe how much some of this is just torn full cloth from the book. Oh, I mean, yeah. like they did use the book as a screenplay for a lot of it. And there was clearly some stuff that like they just liked too much to get rid yeah. of that probably for sure. Yeah, that like was a little bit of a waste of time, but my main interest in this movie is why in 1975 pluck this story from 1939 where is the resonance in the, where's the 1975ness and when you start looking at it it's because this is a very 1975 story that has very 1975 themes running through it i think thematically you're right i think there's also business reasons why which we are going to get to in one second after this break hey guys thank you so much for listening so far and let me just tell you that everything ahead of this commercial is much better than what came before it. That's my guarantee. While I have you here, let me tell you about a website. It's called yourpopfilter.com. And it's everything you need that's related to Pop Filter. Everything Mike, everything Ryan, everything Greg, everything Cassie, everything is there at yourpopfilter.com. While you're there, go to yourpopfilter.com slash Amazon. Make that your new Amazon bookmark and do your shopping from there. That way, we get a little piece of the action, and Amazon doesn't. Make sure you're also listening to everything that Pop Filter has to offer, which includes the Superhero Show Show, a podcast that covers every single TV show that's based on a comic book or comic book property, and Movie of the Year, where we sit down and try and figure out what is the single greatest movie of any given year. That's Superhero Show Show. That's Movie of the Year. And that's yourpopfilter.com. Rate, subscribe, review. Bye! 35 years after Nathaniel West released his novel The Day of the Locust, blacklisted screenwriter Waldo Salt took his shot at turning the unfilmable novel into a screenplay. What took so long? Well, the book scorches Hollywood, and it wasn't until the 70s that the studios got nervous about independent filmmakers scorching Hollywood anyway. So basically, talk shit on yourself so others can't. The movie follows a wide variety of losers and failures, all shacked up in a bungalow complex in the middle of Hollywood, including a drunk, angry little person, a drunk, happy salesman, his daughter, Faye, a wannabe actress who can't get more than extra parts, a child actor who you just want to punch or stomp on, (laughs) and Todd, an artist working for production designer. Eventually, we bring in Homer Simpson, a large, simple accountant who lets this loser crew into his life. The episodic story takes us around the town, showing us porn movie parties, cockfights, studio disasters, and horses and pools, before finally ending up at a movie premiere, which we will get to later. Taste, Greg, I ask you this. Before we start to analyze the quality of the day of the locust, actually, we did that in the intro. So after we analyze, yeah, we did it, dude, knocking stuff off the list. After we analyze the quality of the day of the locust, let's just categorize it a little bit. What genre does it want to be, and what genre does it end up being? Okay. This, even though I had every forewarning that you're going to ask me this question, it is still a difficult one to answer because in so many ways, this movie frames itself like a parody or a comedy, maybe a little bit of a satire, but really like a parody or or a comedy, but it's so violent and angry and nihilistic and really 
so distasteful in so many ways um, that it doesn't quite achieve that comedic, but it's still not, it's not like a, it's not a drama. It's yeah, it's, it's shot like a drama. And I think that's what helps it out so much that the camera makes it feel like a drama. And sometimes it's shot like a, like a romance. Like, I guess it's one of these movies that kind of like it fluctuates in style to accentuate certain elements for sure. And yeah, and it, it wants you to give, it wants to give you that feel of old school Hollywood without like exact mimicry. Right, it's not yeah. doing everything like that, but it does want to give you that feel. But I think that's just one way, one tool that it uses to suck you in and then just beat you over the head. Like you, you watch most of this movie, sort of one eyebrow raised, confused, with a hand over your mouth. Like what, what in the holy fuck? Yeah. And again, that's after reading the book. And <laughs> I think that the sort of obsession with is grotesque. The grotesqueries, is that like an appropriate word for these characters? Oh, yeah. This is like Hollywood gothic or something. Like, like uh, everyone has... And, and it's it's obviously, it's kind of vile in the way that it does it because it's like, here's this awful person. And then on top of everything else, he's a little person. Right, exactly. And it's like, okay, fuck you. Like, you can't try to like make that. <laughs> but that's just probably 75 bullshit or, or 1939 bullshit. But, you know, like the, the emphasis on the cockfighting, um, the, the concrete donkey, the the porn party and the like listening to everybody's like commentary during the porn party. It's it, it just, it is supposed to just like be vile. I think in every, every facet. Yeah. I think that, yeah, you're sort of supposed to be, you're supposed to be grossed out everywhere you look, you know, like that's, that goes to the commentary part too, but like to not be grossed out, I think, I don't know what that says about you. And I think that maybe we attach ourselves to Todd thinking he'll get grossed out too. Right. He'll, because but he's sort of like us, and then instead that he becomes like the grossest part of it, right? Like, yeah. Because the other thing is the movie keeps peaking in its grossness or awfulness. Like Todd basically sexually assaulting, and just because he's fought off, not like successfully uh, raping. What's her name? Faye. Faye. Um, and then like the way in which that doesn't get digested or processed by anybody in the movie, and it's just kind of like. He's like, geez, sorry about that. And she's like, doesn't even want to talk about it because she seems to have a, a, a like a non-connection to it. Uh, and then they just go about their lives. And then even after the big riot at the end, after the next day, they kind of all just go about their lives again. So there keeps being this like really explosion of violence and terribleness. But rather than it like, as Homer Simpson says, ending everything or, or tearing it all burning it all down it doesn't do that instead it's kind of like it just the rage and the vileness gets spewed for one night and then it's almost like a pimple or something it heals over or the purge like as long yeah. as we have this one night a year then or more than that but yeah there's th- like there's this need to have that night you know but there's also this like complacency with the night you know like what are we going to fight it are we going to not have the night of rape and violence that's obviously not possible so and it's hard not dive to see in. this a kind of against the backdrop of the the Tulsa race massacre right like like this is something that our culture does like every once in a while there just is this explosion of vile violence and it's usually racialized in a way that it's not in this particular story and that's probably a weakness of it because it does tend to always have a racial character but then life does kind of go on and then it's like people don't want you to talk about it they don't mm-hmm. they don't want to talk about the all this stuff that went down 
Except for maybe a smirk or a joke or, you know, a little admittance of what you did, but not like never like face and re- what what happened and reflect on it. You know, yeah. we have to keep moving. Yeah, never like you know the crack in the wall. Never fix the crack in the wall. Just change what covers it over right. until the earthquake comes again and exposes it again, and then you find another way to paper it over until I guess we do grind towards a true apocalypse. <laughs> in a way, this movie presents something I think worse than an apocalypse. It's a it's that the apocalypse happens again and again and again, right. and that we just keep we keep barely woundedly dragging ourselves forward but we're basically in a hell of our own you know creation because the the apocalypse won't end it it just prolongs it i could definitely see the argument go back to genre of post-apocalyptic i also thought war um there is war scenes in a movie that's in the movie right They're, they're filming a movie called waterloo but just this whole like there is this like Pearl Harbor, yes, the movie aspect of it about the girl and the two boys, like the love triangle amidst this epic, this sweeping epic of disaster. And uh-huh. I'm, not, I'm not saying that this is a war movie, but I'm saying that this takes from what we understand war movies to be of let's hone in on all of this chaos and see if we can make sense of stuff. And the answer is absolutely not. You can absolutely <laughs> not make sense of anything. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it, it, all the it's interesting that the war is is you know the Napoleonic Wars because that was also covered in Barry Lyndon. Yeah, which is so fucking that, weird. Like yeah. that's the movie that we did last week, and now here we are. But the it, it you know the movie seems to be interfacing with the Vietnam War as well, right? Which is just like come to an awful conclusion a few years before this, and didn't give any sort of resolution or any sort of idea of what we we were supposed to do or how we were supposed to feel about any of that. And I think that is definitely a way more 1975 feel than 1939 feel, because I think in 1939, what people wanted to do was not fucking get in a war, no for matter sure. what. Yeah. <laughs> and, and what, what I, what I would say is subtle for this movie, maybe not subtle for European stuff, because that's always better. But uh, and what is subtle for this movie they get up and leave the movie theater. Uh, Todd, Faye, and the cowboy all get up and leave the movie theater just as the newsreel comes on talking about how Hitler is invading Poland. Uh-huh. And they just completely disregard it and leave. Like, that is that is not for us. We are on to different stuff now. Yeah. We came to just see the really, really bad movie that our friend was in for 10 seconds. 10 seconds, yeah. <laughs> all right, Greg, I'd be remiss if we didn't at least talk about but the, just the opening of this movie, okay, and where that takes us. I, I understand that Lynch is not a classic genre that you would necessarily see in blockbuster, but I do uh-huh. think Lynchian is it is like it's a title that we do give certain things, right? Yes. Yeah. This is before Lynch made anything, but would you describe this movie as Lynchian anyway? Yeah, I mean, it seems proto-Lynchian. Um, it it does something that he likes to do with his projects, which is. It first it lulls you in almost seeming a little sappy and soporific and stupid and like you know you're you're almost falling asleep because it seems dreamy and like, then that like 50s bullshit like yeah every, all of the stuff is all of the good stuff is taken out so we just have vanilla yeah and then um that becomes like so horrible in its own way and then the way in which it becomes horrible it the move both you know this movie and Lynch starts pushing on that and it becomes more and more terrible until the normal and the terrible join into something that is like so potent 
and so awful that you Mulholland Drive style want to crawl into your bed and shoot yourself in the brain because you're just like, you can't deal with smiling tourists. You can't deal with niceness. You can't deal with bright sun anymore because all of it has been perverted and twisted and shown to be so awful in it in its terrible normalcy. If not, crawl into bed and shoot yourself in the head. At least straight down to a tiny little old couple and fuck, you get into your box. Your and move box. super fast. Yeah. Yeah. Do your super fast moving and... The first 30 seconds of Blue Velvet is sort of like everything you need from Lynch because it sort of it has the camera come in on the classic house, white picket fences, mm-hmm. green grass, and then move into the grass. And now we have a severed ear getting torn apart by bugs, right? Look what's underneath uh, all of the Americana surface. And if you told me that David Lynch had never seen the film Day of the Locust, I would slap you in the face and call you a liar. Like, yeah. It's not just that aspect of like, if you if you pick up any rock, any pretty awesome rock, what, what's underneath is going to be disgusting. But I mean, we're talking. There's there's stuff that feels directly out of Mulholland Drive in this movie. From the the set, the opening set, the place where a lot of the action takes place, it looks exactly the same, Greg. Yeah, it obviously this we didn't know it at the time, but uh, Mulholland Drive is made to be in conversation with this movie. Lynch t- picks it up and goes a lot of different places with it. But I think he would say, yeah, I wanted you to see Day of the Locust in my movie. That's why I used the San Bernardino arms, which I think is a, a, a suite of offices on the <laughs> on, on, a, on, a, on a lot. But it really does look like a tiny apartment complex. And that's why I did the same, um, you know, gauzy 1950s effects on, on my leading lady. So I, I think that he would, you know, obviously own up to it. And then I do think he takes it to new, exciting places, yes. Lynch does. But, like, this movie gave us Mulholland Drive, which is probably Mulholland Drive might be the most important movie in, like, this podcast's I, history. Yeah, yeah, I definitely think that, especially a non-Miyazaki movie, uh, yeah. Mulholland Drive is it. Um, and, yeah, I mean, Lynch goes a million different places, you know, but there's so many seedlings here from, um, like, the little person at the center of it, just like mm-hmm. Mulholland Drive, to the fucking random cowboy who shows up. In yes, dude. The most uh, inopportune and violent places. Like, there's, I could see this movie putting so many seeds into Lynch's head. You know what Lynch did though that I really appreciate? He gave us still a very beautiful story at the center of all of it. I really do think there is a legit love story at the center of Mulholland Drive, and it goes bad, obviously. Uh, but there is a legitimate love story in there. At least where love did exist. Love once yeah. was, if not now. Whereas Day of the Locust... Like, I, I don't know what love is in, in <laughs> Day of the Locust. I mean, this is like... Again, I think this is the most nihilistic movie we've seen. I think Come and See is like has more hope than yeah. this movie does because at least come and see like it's like well i will engage with the real world this movie seems like it, it paints a picture of a world where we will do any violent thing not to deal with the repercussions of our violence so it is a hyper violent loop where we are just using violence to escape violence which is very true but i mean i do think there is also beauty and love and some warmth in the world and that is what lynch captures so effectively because he is himself a big warm sweetie he's also weird he's also intense he also has nihilistic tendencies um but at the core of all that is like a sweetheart that everybody loves because he's like a big big baby boy (laughs) if if day the locust did offer some thing that seemed funny on purpose like funny in their world Uh i do think that would have helped immensely like i'm not saying that to have todd and Faye end up together that would have been actually terrible he did yeah 
attempt to rape her. But uh, if there was something that we could uh, hang our hats on as far as this is what hope looks like in this world, I think it would have helped a lot. There's just that's just not there in this movie. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like <laughs> the no good thing happens there's like the, the 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 child at the center of all of it the one child instead of being the hope and the bright future like when you see another character stomp that child to death you're just so glad you're not gonna have to see that fucking kid anymore <laughs> and that darkness as you can tell get does get inside you i mean it, like you you feel that they make you hate that kid they make you really feel a genuine dislike for that kid greg i want to dive into everything that the kids stomping and the riots bring us so let's take a break and when we come back let's talk about this ending hola filterinos i just wanted to interrupt real briefly and say thank you for listening thank you for your support if you want to support us a little more directly you can go to patreon.com slash your pop filter there depending on what tier you pick one dollars a month five dollars a month if you're crazy anything more than five dollars a month don't do that you can get extra content there's extra shows extra series uh behind the scenes stuff uh you could pay for ryan to draw you a picture Uh, i can write you a poem you can get the shirts off our very own backs all of that and so much more over at patreon.com slash your pop filter while you're on the internet, you should check out Shady Monk. He does all the tunes you've been listening to. He's on Bandcamp, he's on Spotify, uh, SoundCloud, wherever kids get their music these days that I'm too old to know. Shady Monk lives there. Uh, you can probably follow him on Twitter and Instagram as well. That's Shady Monk. Wherever you get music, check him out. Greg, let's just keep talking about the movie, man. Let's not do any of that fuck bullshit that we always do. That Mike makes us always do? Yeah, fucking Mike, yeah. man. I just want to talk about movies. Dang. This season, we're going to be talking about the madness of crowds a lot. Like, a lot, a lot. A lot. A, it's a 1975 thing. Even before the riot at the end of the movie, what is Day of the Locust trying to tell us about the mental stability of the masses? And Greg, why don't you look at that title of the, the book and movie real quick? The Day of the Locust? Yeah, because I would like that to make sense to me at some point. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I think it has to do with obviously plagues, right? Uh, locusts being one of the plagues, and that's like uh, one of the worst things that can happen to you, getting beset with all these locusts. And I guess it also conjures the image of a crowd, right? Locusts are so awful in just their masses. I just charge through and leave nothing in their wake. You yeah, know? they pick. Yeah, they they pick everything clean, and um, and I think. You know, early in the movie when they're at the stag house watching the, the the porn, which I guess back then, like, you did. Like, you all got... Because porn was rare, so you all gathered together to hang out and, and watch porn. Real quick, though. Like, before you move on from the porn party, you talked about the commentary, right? They are doing yeah. live mst3k like oh i bet she's a lesbo and oh she doesn't shave down there and oh, stuff like she's that. flat chested <laughs> yeah it's and it's again it's another one of these things where it's like the re- the audio is so weird because it sounds like three people have microphones and everyone's leaning over just to like say something into them and the things they're saying are really awful and they all have their own things like so there's one woman who just yeah. like, gives a terrible appraisal of everybody's appearance there's a guy who just keeps saying ah she really wants to be with daddy ah yep <laughs> see she's gonna end up with that and it's like bro you, like please stop just hey, don't honestly, say daddy and don't say anything else either and honestly it sounds like they're inventing podcasts i don't know yes why that's it, a problem but and you, you know what the most offensive thing is ryan nobody makes a good call 
Yeah, if that is true. If you are going to make a call when everyone's watching movies, that's fine. But like, bring it. Don't just keep talking about daddy. Like, actually say something funny or interesting or just Santa Day. I want to yeah, like the the reasons why this scene is so gross is I think a bunchfold. I think that they are terrible people. I think that how rich they are and how probably not super into uh, the movies, like being in the movies, the actors were. Uh-huh. You know, um, I think that the time is part of it. I think that if this movie, you know, if we were watching the Apatow actors do this, we wouldn't. Uh-huh. They would be probably be funnier, but like we wouldn't think that much of it. But like in the thirties. People, get your shit together. <laughs> yeah, and it's, you know, I guess there's there's something always sort of unseemly about watching somebody else watch porn because mm-hmm. it just feels like it's supposed to be such a private, terrible secret thing that you do. And I think, honestly, that's why they all make these comments because they need to be separated Absolutely. from how awkward it is. And they need to be separated even from the fact that, like, the movie does cause them to feel legitimate desire, which is what porn ultimately that's how it dunks on us right is that we see that it's so ridiculous and we see that it's bad but then it does still titillate us and so they're fighting that off uh and i think this movie is about obviously not engaging with your bestial side and then just letting it suddenly come out for one good stomping well fucking jokes on them because the thing that titillates me is statler and waldorf level commentary at porn so i totally got off watching this uh, all right, so you like we were we were trying to get to the crowds. I interrupted you. I apologize. Um, do you remember where you were? Oh yeah, well, just so you know, that's the first time or one of the times where you're like, okay, like when people are massed together in this, they are even kind of worse, and they're bringing out the worst in each other. And then you start seeing them gathered, crowds gathered like outside the studios, crowds gathered at at premieres, and the crowd has this twin thing that you see in the porno as well, which is that. The porno crowd as well, which is they love the actors, they love the entertainment, but they're like they've got bloodlust too. Oh, yeah. They like want to see these people fail. And that's so true, right? Like that is the relationship we have with our celebrities. We love them, but we want them we want to pull them down off that pedestal and we want to consume them. We want to like uh the bacchanal, we want to pull them apart with our bare hands. And then move on down the road and find the next celebrity to first revere and love and then finally pull down and destroy. And so we're seeing that crowd, that mad, you know, uh, Dionysian crowd all throughout this movie. Poppy chopping, uh, tall poppy syndrome. Is that what it's called? In Australia, New Zealand, like there's a thing where if you get too famous... All that they want is to just cut you down and destroy you. I also sort of think that we see the in- invention of like truly terrible tabloid, uh, like paparazzi, basically mm-hmm. in this. Like how much that is similar to the riot at the end. The people with their cameras, whether they're tourists or reporters, um, just charging down people, even if it's at a cemetery, even if they're at the celebrities at a funeral. Uh, charging them down and busting them open basically the same way that they did to the cars in the riot. You know, all of the celebrity, like, uh, we love you. Therefore we own you. Therefore we will eat you. We are just going to eat you to death. Yeah. You know, we, we, we love you. We love you so much. We'll eat you up, right? Eat you up. I love you. So, and even the, when they're outside the Hollywood sign, the 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 tour is doing that. The tour guide is doing that same thing for you here in every tour, which is like all the terrible stuff that happens yeah. to people, places, and that's what 
everybody wants to hear, as Vonnegut would say, the splat stories, right? Like we all want to hear. And so that's part of a celebrity's job is to very publicly die in front of all of us, thus completing the circle. And if they don't do it on their own, if they don't, you know, Jimmy Dean flip the the James Dean flip the car. No, the sausage guy. Jimmy he Dean crashed. flipped the sausage, yeah. Uh <laughs> Yeah, the guy that the guy giving the tour at the very beginning is like, and here's the H where uh, you know, a young lady dove off to her death when she didn't get a role. And people in the audience are like, Fuck yeah. Like sports fans are like, Hell yeah. Yeah. She died. <laughs> and then, you know, we see that 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 death wish everywhere in the cockfights and uh in the movies and then in just the, the in people's actions, you know, just a desire to bring about their own destruction and the destruction of everything around them. And I do think the movie does a good job of the thing that the book did, which is there's so many reasons why you do it. You're human, you're a sociopath, you're a psychopath, but you were also bored. And we just keep yeah. like elevating these levels of crazy shit that we do until all of a sudden we find ourselves like skydiving, uh, throwing chickens at each other. Like, Oh my God, what does our life become? Because that's what we can't, the thing that organisms can't take is no input. If there's no like stimulus at all, an organism goes out and creates it for itself. And humans are just very much, you know, a, a more complex version of that. So if our lives are boring, we can't take it. So we create drama. And the way we create drama is we actively destroy our own lives. And then we like sort of get a frisson of excitement by watching our lives fall apart in sort of melodramatic fashion. Or we could just watch a movie where people destroy their own lives. Isn't that so much easier? Yeah, but see, I guess what a movie like this points out is that that is helping to abate that, but it's not dealing with it. It's not extinguishing it. It's not actually exercising it. It's just putting it in a very temporary holding pattern, waiting for this like explosion. And it seems it seems like the closer that you get to the movies, the more the explosion is going to be. So like everyone is abated by movies, but there's a thing that where once you get to the center of it then you are going... Like, it's going to be a mushroom cloud. So let's get to there then, shall we? Let's get to there. The mushroom cloud at the end. Can you sort of explain how the end of the movie goes down? Did, when you talk about the end, do you mean like the, the premiere of the movie? The movie premiere, the, yes. We yes. Had, we've got like Tab Hunter and all of these uh, Hollywood stars that you've sort of heard of, but not really. Like Humphrey Bogart's not here. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And they're at the premiere of this movie, and there's this huge crowd, and it's like roiling. And um, there's an announcer there, like f- talking on the radio, and he's dictating everything that's going on, almost like a fight announcer. And then through this, Homer Simpson is like trying to find Faye and like win her back. And while he is attempting to do this, the little impish child, uh. Like, is following him around, taunting played, him. Played by Jackie Earl Haley of Rorschach fame. Jackie Earl Haley. And, and, and the movie very much wants you to know that this is a, a little boy playing a little girl. And it's one of the ways in which I feel like the movie is trying to present something as so freakish, but that it, it just makes the movie look meaner than, you know, it, it makes the movie look mean. That doesn't make it seem like it's making a great comment on anything, but... Part of what this kid do- does is he screams the song Jeepers Creepers at Homer Simpson, and it is as grating as this kid could possibly make it. And he's a great actor, so he does a great job. And Homer Simpson, who had just recently been like shaking in a scene, saying, like, oh, sometimes I just want to 
burn it all down. We basically gra- we've been watching this gentle giant's life just fall apart for the last two weeks of his life because of meeting Todd and Faye and the cowboy and all of these people. Uh, just living a like a normal, boring life, and now he's he's pushed at the edge of love and hate and all of that. Yeah, and it, it, he has been fully compromised, and he's fully in touch with the rage. And he gives in. He's seen his wife cheating on him. He's seen uh, all his friends make fun of him, and now this kid is also taunting him. And he never has once stood up for himself, Homer Simpson. He's never once said enough. He always this, slowly sneaks back into the bushes. Yeah, but this event is the time he finally says, okay, uh, no more. And he grabs this kid and stomps the kid to death while just like bellowing into the air and seem to be like seemingly disconnected from what he's doing. Like he's not like looking at the kid and, and I don't know, enjoying it or, or for lack of a, a better term, like he's not very engaged with it. He seems to like just be like a weird monkey man who's just jumping up and down on this kid and kills the kid which you don't see a lot in stuff and then gets just torn apart by the crowd like that that we were talking about earlier with like the the bacchanal aspect like just passed from place to place and just torn apart and then they start tearing everything down and literally burning everything down and it becomes very evocative of the mural that todd has been working on until the reality of the mural bleeds into the reality of of the scene and people are like rendered like uh no longer human but like like these weird painted monkey and you know screaming characters that are that have not human faces but instead like demon screaming pits at the center of their faces yeah and and really what a lot of todd's drawings are are faceless people like really just completely plain not like not handsome but like completely white and plain and because everywhere he goes he sees like these old like weathered people just staring into the sun uh-huh. like and so he's drawing their faces everywhere and what he sees is people that are disconnected in the same way that homer simpson seems disconnected as he's stomping on this kid like they're just looking into eternity they're looking into the setting sun deep into the west where we like conceive of the end of everything being and that's who he draws in a very like stylized way and that's who everybody becomes and then they become like Almost like doing not a dance number, but like a weird lockstep march thing. Yeah, but uh, the faces too—they also like it's all of that, but it's also like how Hollywood looks at us and yeah. how Hollywood looks at its audiences, and how all of the characters in this movie essentially look at other people. It's just they're all interchangeable. They're all plain face faced like that. That doesn't. It makes it easier when you hurt people. Yeah. If they're they are just faceless, no name, nothings, which is sort of how we feel when we're next to celebrities. Even if celebrities aren't treating us like that, that's how we feel, and it pisses us off. Yeah, that yeah, because they seem so special, and even if they didn't ask to feel that way, we hate them because they have so much power over us, and we can't do anything that we to gave have. them. Yeah, and then and then we can't affect them in any way besides rioting and and burning stuff down like violence seems to be the only way we can affect their lives and so it builds up in us this this love and this hatred which bloom in the same soil and 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 as each grows the other gets stronger as well until the love and hate combine into something that is like otherworldly demonic and let's be honest too like you know everything we do we do for the children and the protection of the children or at least the revenge of the children but (laughs) 
and what Homer Simpson did was not cool. I would say that that's not cool to stomp uh, an annoying kid to death. Oh, yeah. Thumbs down. <laughs> but we were looking at a mob who was looking for a reason to go off. You know, like, it's not like, all right, well, no children got stomped on, so let's just go home. They were at their peak point and ready to fucking charge over anything. They were riled. I mean, it was a, a, a group of riled white people, like the historically the most dangerous thing that there is. And yeah, they, they needed a reason and they got one and that made them feel vindicated. And that vindication made them even worse. You know, like the way in which uh, we feel like it, when we're being righteous, that allows us to be like as cruel as we could ever possibly be. I mean, I can see that one very, very basic reductive way of breaking down do the right thing is to see if you can make white people back up. Spike Lee is throwing up the trash can into the window. And that, that that's not here, I don't think. You know, like we, we do get to this point, but I don't think the movie does it. Uh, my wife watched this movie with me and she, every, like every time Homer Simpson was in a scene, she was like, who's he going to kill? I was just like, shut up. Sh- shut the fuck up. But... uh. <laughs> Do you think that they did a good job of at least making this seem uh, not that you're rooting for Homer Simpson to kill a child? That is not what I'm saying. But to make it to make at least that part flow from point A to B to C as far as the the plight of Homer Simpson. Like, does it give the movie more continuity? Did they back their shit up? Like, did they did they build it up to a point where you can sort of see that happening, or did that seem just like another uh, extreme grotesque thing the movie throws on? I guess you can, I, I think they set up that it's coming. You know, I, I think that, that Homer only enters the movie about halfway through and suddenly it seems a little bit more like it's about him than it's about Todd. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is totally a part of adapting a book that always yeah. stands out in a movie. Um, but I think that, yeah, like I, I think the movie kind of gets you there. Everything is so gauzy and dreamlike that it, it's hard to imagine anything being like out of the uh, beyond the pale for the movie you know um and i i think the way the movie does it kind of effectively is there's a while there where homer starts dressing really like natalie he's like uh he's got like a cool look for a while and i think it's a legit cool look i think like donald sutherland starts kind of finding a groove and um uh faye really cuts him down in very disgusting terms and i think that because we get that little minor resurgence of Homer and then we see him fall all the way. I think that helps to kind of set the, the hook of the violence or something. That makes sense. Yeah. But I mean, I, I think that it is a little bit rushed and I think that there, if we didn't have his speech, then it would be super out of nowhere, but that speech kind of, and because of the way the movie shows Hollywood corrupting everything, you just expect if you see a nice guy, you're like, wait a minute, is this guy okay? Yeah. You're like, no, this is going to be the one who's the worst of all, I'm sure. <laughs> I, yeah, I guess I, I'm sort of worried about that same thing, and I get worried about things seeming like justification for incels. Like, hey, guys, if you're also treated like Homer Simpson in this movie, uh, not from the cartoon, because he's, as Grimesy, Grimey said, Homer Simpson from the cartoon has a really great life, but this <laughs> one does not. Uh, this does not give you the right to like stomp a child just because you're like Homer Simpson. And as odd as this is to say, because it should probably go without saying, but like, this isn't delivered Joker style where he looks cool when he does it. Like, it's not cool rage. It's 
like what rage really looks like, which is screaming and crying and snot coming out of your nose. And, and as you said earlier, associated. Like, yeah, it's the I'm not in my head right now. You know, like yeah. it's, it's blank eyes, and he's just like jumping in a very non cool way. This yes. is this is not shot like that. Yeah, there's nothing there, there's nothing redeeming about this child murder. All right, okay. We're gonna take one more break, and then we're going to discuss art versus artifice. Well, that is very, very funny or very sad. And perhaps now you have something to think about or very problematic. And perhaps we have something to think about. But in any event, I'm sure you have some reaction to what you're listening to. So why not check us out on the social media? You can go to Instagram or Twitter and find us at your pop filter email contacts at your pop filter hey everybody keep watching them movies what if anything is the movie trying to say about art versus artifice what does it feel about the movie industry and the movies themselves is this a pro movie movie i think this is probably an anti movie movie i don't see a lot of movie magic in this one you know everything is cutting corners everything is is risk uh the like the opening scene of everybody like getting in place for this shot of like uh what is a royal entrance obviously and the way all the extras are being like screamed at and uh the way they're all obviously kind of like vapid and disconnected um it's it's clear that like everything is so polluted and so far from being an imitation of life like we accept that art is not life but it's an imitation of life but this movie really makes the point that hollywood is just an imitation of art that it's art about art about art and honestly as i watch modern movies the bad ones are that times like 10 you know it's just it's like a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy so that it is nothing in it relates back to real life and i think that's a lot of what this movie is about is that we are not looking to Hollywood to tell us stories that help us make sense of our lives. We're looking to Hollywood to tell us stories that help us completely forget the reality of our lives. And so I can go to Hollywood for big budget musicals, like In the Heights, or I can go to independent movies to like really sink in. But when the two cross over, it is kind of weird. It is kind of like, I don't know, they're crossing each other out in a way that is perplexing. Um the other thing too is that the other thing that I think the movie nails about the Hollywood like sort of cast system and is I will if you're asking for a nickel raise I will spend 10 cents on a bullet to shoot you like that whole thing of like how power works is it's we have to save every penny so that I can put a horse in my pool for no reason so that I can we can open up a $1000 a bottle of champagne and like just leave it open on the table and or pour it on each other and not even care like we will do whatever it takes in order to save money over here to not give it to these people so that it's ours and it's not about making more movies or you know having more profit it's just about this we've developed this sort of like i don't know slave system where this maybe this will work out for us you know yeah it's interesting it reminds me of just this week chipotle announced like okay well since minimum wage is going to be 15 dollars an hour guess what everybody burritos are going to be four percent more now and it's like 
bitch, okay, we'll pay 4% more yeah. for a burrito if that means people can have a living fucking wage. You're so in the mindset of that you have to have like blood money for everything that you think that's crazy, but we don't care. We want people to be comfortable. Also, I love the idea of tone, having tone in press releases. Just come out and give us the facts, but they're like, I'm sorry, we have to do this. I'm sorry, Chipotle fans. We have to raise it 4%. Like, it's fine. It's fine. We don't care. You're the same company charging me like 50 cents, 50 cents extra to get guac. Like, <laughs> it's you're going to be okay, everybody. According to Chipotle, avocados are worth more than hand grenades. Like, avocados are one of the most expensive things that have ever been. Certainly created. more than their, the lives of their employees. <laughs> um, everything that we lo- look at, everything that we see in this movie is uh, sort of gross on the flip side. And I do think that's the case for the movie itself. I do think that the first half of the movie is... LA sort of looks cool. I want to go there. I want it looks to... bright. It's the it's the Mulholland Drive thing. It's like so bright and and it looks so clear and so beautiful. I don't know if this uh, movie has an exact moment where things go to shit, uh, or if it's more of like a natural organic arc. But the back half of this movie, everything is disgusting, and I really like that idea. I don't know if it's done the best in this movie, but I like that idea of just exploring that. You guys think that, and it, it, it's done in the movies. You guys think that Waterloo, the Napoleon biopic, is looks great, but here's what it looks like to actually film it. Yeah, it, it looks like shit, and it's really dangerous. Like we're putting people in danger all the time. So even the movies themselves are on trial here. <laughs> well, you know they, they do. This is a weird thing, but like as consumers, we always think of like these pampered Hollywood elites. But on the sets of movies, actors are treated like absolute cattle. Like, uh-huh. uh, you know, I remember the story I heard about Titanic and they couldn't. I was film, just going to say Titanic. Yeah. yeah. They couldn't make the water warm because then it would steam up. So they're just like standing cold water for eight hours a day. Like, is that glamour? Is that the life that like we think of like these actors leading? No, because we hate them because we love them. And so we never think that their lives are absolute shit. And then we make their lives absolute shit. It's a pretty good argument that the movie's making because. If I'm like, hey, Day the Locust, I hate you. And then the movie's like, so that means you love me, right? That's because that was the message. Actually, you hate the bad thing. And I'm yeah. commenting on that. So. But even with that, it makes itself so distasteful that it's really, I don't think Nathaniel West or the makers of this movie wanted us to feel that good about anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> if, if anybody likes it, that's when you failed. Yeah. All right, Greg, let's hand out some awards. This movie was nominated for two Oscars. It won zero. Tonight, it's going to win five. Woo! Uh, let's start with this one. Most Hollywood moment. For most Hollywood moment, I went with that screaming at the extras in the very beginning of the oh, movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think most people would like love to just be like an extra in a movie and just have that, like just be on set and just see what's there. And because of that, because that's kind of true, they will just treat you so uh, yeah. poorly. But again, and, this this goes back to the caste system. It's it's because they can. It's not just yeah. about how it's more affordable to treat you like shit. We want to, and so we will. A lot of people are drawn to Hollywood because there's so much money and power there that you get to treat people like garbage. That's what they want out of the situation. They want to abuse people. Um, uh, you ever been an extra on a movie? I have not been an extra on a movie. I I am not interested in the trappings of fame, nor would I ever want a camera to capture my visage. That's true. In fact, a lot of people have made the argument that I'm not famous because your not your uninterest in fame has held me back. 
Yeah, I think that it's kind of eclipsed you as well. Sorry. Mine is, uh, we already talked about this, but not noticing the newsreel of Hitler. That just seems yeah. so Hollywood to me. <laughs> just like, let's get out of here before important stuff happens. Um, my biggest weirdo, and this movie has a lot, but like you said in the intro of this episode, they all, it's like, they have this thing that the author thought was weird, you know, like being uh-huh. a little person. And then we had to add to that. And so that makes it feel weird. I'm going to say the cowboy. I think that his interactions with everyone are wrong. Every single time he has a conversation, he's fucking fucked up in the brain. He dresses. He's an extra on cowboy set yeah. that dresses like a cowboy all day, every day. Yeah, there is this weird Hollywood thing about having a character that doesn't quite seem human who is a cowboy. And it's like, I guess it's because cowboys are such a creepy, really like cultural image that like when the more you think about them, the more distasteful they are. But that certainly is a weird guy. Mine is just a uh, phase dad. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I can't believe we haven't talked about Burgess Meredith that much at all on this episode. Yeah, it's, it's all come by so quick. Um and his thing, his like weird thing that we're supposed to dislike about him, I think, is that he's he's sick and dying. And so that always makes you distasteful. But on top of that, um, he's just always trying to like perform a little a little shuffle. And it's like awful. And his jokes are always so terrible. He like terrible to the point of vileness. Again, it gets vile. Like when uh, Faye and Todd are, I guess, kind of making out. Dude. Um, he walks in and it goes and he's dying. Uh, he but he won't die. He's just dying. He won't fucking die. And he's like, "Hey, buddy, don't worry about it." And talking about his daughter, he says, "If you need to help her start up, just take it out and put it in her hand." Uh, that's sexual assault. Don't do that. That's her father. That yeah, is her, her father. And he refers to her as a cock tease. He says CT. Yeah. But then I thought about what that means because I was he put it in my head and I was like CT. What does that mean? And what it means is he's saying about his daughter that she's a cock tease. Because she doesn't want to do Todd, who fucking sucks. Like, she's not a cock tease with some other people who she's sexually attracted to. She just doesn't like Todd because he's a fucking gross rapist. And he's, we haven't even mentioned, he's William Atherton, the villain of Ghostbusters and Die Hard. One of the villains of Die Hard. Like, and one of the villains of fucking Day of the Locust. He's the worst part of Die Hard. Oh, for right? sure. Yeah, he won Biggest Shithead in 88 because we hated him so fucking much. Uh, and yeah, d- definitely the worst person here. Um, I'm going <laughs> to give that one to you. Uh, <laughs> Yay! cringiest moment greg okay uh this guy i found out is supposed to be he is of mexican descent pepe serna is a mexican actor we have the same one okay but clearly and i don't know what they said to pepe serna or what he knows he is supposed to deliver on the set of a movie but this guy does a mexican accent that I was like embarrassed to hear. It is like Speedy Gonzalez's racist cousin. Um, and again, I looked racist it up and, against Mexicans. Yeah, racist against Mexicans. Yeah, the, the 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 type of Mexican that's racist against Mexicans. Which, if you've run into those guys, are really racist. <laughs> Not to stereotype, but it's like honestly that the first the first line out of his mouth. I texted you. I don't think I'm supposed to be listening to this guy talk. Like it's really. It makes your skin crawl. I uh, okay. So mine's close. Mine's mine's the camera work on the Mexican guy because um, it, this movie is full of terrible pieces of shit. This guy's sort of his piece of shit thing is that he's Mexican. That's sort of it. Yeah, like he gets a lot of shit for um, hooking up with the cowboy's girl. 
but they weren't together. So she's he, nobody's girl at that point. Yeah, like, she's made that so clear. He's kind of a good dancer. He drinks a lot of tequila. I'm not sure. He's what the hottest they, guy in the movie by far. Yeah, I'm not sure what the issue is, but the way that they film him is this sweaty, swarthy, yes. uh, tiny mustache, disgusting. Like it'll close in on uh, his mouth and then his gold tooth, and then his gold tooth will pull out revolvers and start shooting them in the air. Like he. This is racist filmmaking just by us. That's how we're, we're othering him is like, look at how I'm filming him. And I really feel like it's supposed to be like, no, wait, though. It's like a commentary on that because Hollywood actually has a pretty bad. And it's like, no, it's not. Bro, no. This is like, this is brown face. Like this yeah. dude is offending everybody. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, next one is director's signature. Uh, I'm going to take this one first. I'm going to say shooting L.A. Uh, we talked about how we didn't talk about on this show, but on a break, we talked about this guy's other movies are Marathon Man and Midnight Cowboy. And so I hesitate to say, but I think this guy's really good at turning cities into characters. And I think that this is one of the premier Los Angeles movies. Like if you're super into LA, not just like the culture or the, Uh or the themes of what, like how LA was built, but like, what does it look like and how does it look cool? I think you have to watch this. Unfortunately, that's probably not him. Uh, Cinematography won uh, or got an Oscar nomination. And I do think that it's somebody else who did this, but I do think his thing of making sure that we pay attention to the city is very important to this guy who is Schlesinger. I want to say, yeah, and for mine, it was a similar thing, I think, which is just um, taking a glamorous place and showing both its glamour and its real cruddiness, right? So uh, same thing with Midnight Cowboy. Like, everyone knows that New York is the the best city in the world, but it's also, like, a hellhole. And L.A., like, everybody knows that it's a beautiful, sun-dappled paradise, but also beneath that is a rotting core. Man, people would watch movies like Midnight Cowboy and say like, oh, bright lights, big city, can't wait to go there. I would watch movies like that. And there's a ton of movies. Bubbits Take Manhattan, for instance, like Midnight <laughs> Cowboy. And I just, I always said, I will never go to that place. And I still have not been. It's It looks terrible. You would love it though, Ryan. You like you could just like wander around and get into all sorts of different places and it's so it's so festooned with life but unfortunately anything that includes a lot of life also includes people probably taking standing dumps and alleys and a <laughs> Actually, general pervasive like piss smell yeah. but like it it's i mean it, like in Midnight Cowboy New York is like the 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 glitziest glamour and the gruddiest grime at the same time and i think honestly that has like an alchemic reaction that for some people just makes it an intoxicating place. I've been to New Orleans, Greg. Can you milk yeah. me? <laughs> it sucks that that's your life now. Any sentence that ends with the word, Greg. Even if I'm thinking stuff to myself sometimes. <laughs> and sometimes even if sentences don't end with Greg. Just like, you know, I have 20 bucks. Can you milk me? <laughs> Wait, that one doesn't sound good. I should not have said that. <laughs> that is a sound bite. I'm so glad I'm the one that clips our sound. <laughs> Final awards tonight. Oh, wait. Did you do... Th- yeah. You said LA, right? I did. I said, yeah, the grimy. Final award, Greg, is pound for pound performance in what is basically a 1975 staple, the ensemble movie, right? It's uh-huh. pretty close to not having a lead, but maybe 10 stuff. And, and we're going to have this with... It's we have no an, Nashville, Ryan. <laughs> we have an Altman movie coming up. So uh, who did you pick for pound for pound performance? I just... I like this award more in an ensemble movie because there's not like a dead El Pacino giveaway, you know? 
I I have to say uh, I approach these differently because it's the two of us, and so we're no one's getting points, and so I'm not afraid to to go out on a limb. But I saw the movie three times, and I have to say, for me, it really was the lady that played the preacher in the one oh, revival shit. scene. This her is name, a famous lady. Her name is Karen Black. And no, no, no. Karen Black is Faye Greener. Oh, is it? Yeah. Then I'm, uh, <laughs> I must have it, been like, oh, no, actually, I mean Faye Greener. Uh, but no, okay, so I don't know who the preacher lady is. Uh, Geraldine Chaplin, I want to say. That sounds good to me. Uh, okay. Well, I can look. I have it right here on my computer. But here's what I liked about her. Um, I am so drawn to charlatans. I'm so drawn to mountebanks and, and um, you know, people who con others using only the power of their voice. And a lot of these people, unfortunately, are preachers. And she is... Geraldine Page, okay, yeah. Um, she is such a charlatan, such a phony, such a fake. But her voice is so powerful and I was just transported. I mean, I, I just I love listening to preachers talk because they are they do something that engages people. Um, and she has so much energy and so much vitality in it that it, it's honestly, even though she's probably the biggest faker in the whole thing, it's the least loathsome performance, I think, of, of any character. You faker. I will say I will admit that personally in my life, I I do have like a severe prejudice against people who fall for Geraldine Page's shit. Uh huh. You know, like I don't like that bothers me, but I do have an endless, not appreciation, but fascination with the people who got them to fall for their own shit. Like, oh yeah, that is so interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, because I want to do it too. I, because I, I think what is appealing about it, Ryan, is we have the power to do it, but you have to, you have to really have no shame. Yeah, and we have all the shame. We have all the shame. Yeah, but so that's part of what it is. It's like I know how powerful voice can be it's like it's like dune in dune it's a it's a literal power and in real life it kind of is too and she can just with her voice loki style make people do the things she wants she doesn't heal the sick but she convinces them that they should stand up even if they're not good at standing because of the amount of pressure she exerts on them using her voice and using using the crowd and i just thought that that little snippet captured so much of what the movie was trying to do in so many different ways and she's just selling out. The performance is just a, a virtuoso one. Well, I can't beat that. I do think that you should go for that stuff on the normal pointed show where we get points because I think that was a really good argument. I am going to go with Burgess Meredith because I was a little unsure that we were going to get a chance to talk about him. Yeah. We, we have talked about him a lot as this lecherous, disgusting father who uh, we're happy when he dies. <laughs> but this is like a, I don't know, a, about a major star in Hollywood. Uh, but... I don't know. This is a guy who uh, sort of made his rounds for 40 years and then got nominated for this movie. And there is a lot of crazy stuff going on. There is a lot of range. You know, I, I am as much as I'm addicted to like the personality that you're talking about with the Geraldine Page character. I also am with the can't stop performing character. Yeah. You know? Like I literally cannot turn it off. There is no off switch. I think that's fascinating. At first, uh, it's like kind of like an oh, okay, you're one of those. But by the end of this, you're like, okay, you are imprisoned no, by this. Like right. this is a compulsion. You are like the real life Joker. <laughs> I mean, it's one of those things that like a lot of people say as a way to brag. Like, uh, it's just <laughs> it's, that's just me. I just can't turn it off. But, Sorry, on all the time. Yeah, just I always tell it like it is. But with this person, <laughs> like it, it really does lead to their death. You know, like they can't stop, um, and. 
sort of spanning the entire era of Hollywood up to that point. Like, this is somebody who had stories about every single second of Hollywood. And even beyond that, really, because when he's selling his, his like, universal solvent, that kind of takes him back to, like, the Wild West, like, uh-huh, yeah. you know, medicine man or, or snake oil salesman. And then even going back beyond that, the Mountbank is, is, is a character from, like, Venetian drama and, like, in Shakespearean drama. So, like... He like kind of encompasses how uh, how charlatanism and entertainment and salesmanship are all intermixed, and not just in Hollywood, but in like the history of entertainment and the history of performance. If not the same, then the middle of that Venn diagram is basically the same. It's basically yeah. the same, and this is sort of the other time too, where uh, the director does a very outgoing like a very like crazy thing that actually works for me the i talked about how the ending didn't really work for me but his turning burgess meredith's scene of going door-to-door salesmaning into a looney tune Uh i thought was really good like he changed the music he changed the camera and that was like uh, that was sort of daring and did work i i was sort of stoked to see that sort of like uh i don't know going out on on a limb that i hadn't seen up to that point in the movie and there's also like a kind of laughing style straight woman in that scene who's sitting on the the thing and she's just like delivering these very dry rebuttals to everything he tries. That is where the tone absolutely probably is the most joyous of the entire yeah. movie. Like we actually get to sit back and have a little fun. It's just it's also kind of perverse because of the way it's situated in the rest of the film. Why did the woman have a big wall though where she would open up tiny doors and then oh, answer the question? Sock it to me. <laughs> Classic references, Greg. We're always doing it. <laughs> hey, it's a 75 show, okay? You're going to get up, 75 everybody. references. <laughs> uh, all right, so that's all the awards. Greg, real quick, before we bounce out of here, and we talk about next week's Dog Day Afternoon, and the week after that, we're doing the horny zombie movie Shivers. Oof, these are 75 has got it all. Uh, if this was in the bracket, I'm going to ask you this every show. If this was in the bracket, what are we thinking? Does it have a shot? Is there anything it could do? I'm going to say no for this one in particular. It's, I think, to understand the movies of 75, you absolutely have to see this movie. But um, it doesn't leave anything to the imagination. It doesn't really leave us much to ponder outside of the movie. It never strives to be pleasant. It doesn't seem to engage with enough of the totality of life. Um, But honestly, the thing that's really hurting it, I think, is there's nothing left to wonder about it after it's over. Like you, that's that's a perfect way to put it. And I hate these like decrescendo movies, these American decrescendo movies, where we're going to start it off thinking, like sort of asking you to use your imagination. And as we get closer to the end, we're like, no, don't you don't have to. We're no, yeah. we're gonna we're gonna fill in all the blanks for you. Yeah, and so like it, it's. You know, I don't think we could have done much more talking about it. Um, and if we get to the end of the show and we're like, yeah, we talked that out, that movie's never gonna gonna win so it never had a chance and i i think that it made sense that we booted it but the way it kind of intertextually connects to the other bracket movies was really cool it was a cool excuse to talk about it that's i mean i already mentioned i watched dolomite and i'm gonna mention again now that's it's not a good movie man but i feel so much better about 1975 having watched dolomite and day of the locust Greg, we already plugged in a bunch of commercials throughout this episode. So We did, yeah. We got them all in there already. Is there, I'm going to have you send us out. Is there anything you want to say to everybody? 
stay tuned for more of these Thursday shows. We're going to have some really interesting guests, and you're going to get uh, a mix of all of us on these. And then uh, we'll still have the big eight going in the bracket. So you know what? Do us all a favor, everybody. And keep watching them move. <laughs>